0: All right. Hello, everyone, and welcome back. This is Urban History Podcast at CU Denver, University of Colorado Denver, as Maggie and I, two co-hosts, are Master of Urban and Regional Planning students. I'm Camille, and I'm from Seattle, Washington. I've also spent some time living in Vancouver, London, and Sydney, just to give you some context of the urban environments that I've spent time in. And I'm Maggie. I'm a girl from the Midwest. So I lived in Sioux Falls, South Dakota before moving to Fargo, North Dakota. And Urban History is a podcast that we Maggie and I actually did for a final project in our uh, urban history and theory class uh, last semester, and we just had a lot of fun with it. I think that kind of an outcome that we'd love with this podcast is just to discuss how the challenges and successes and patterns in our contemporary urban environment can really be linked and reflected in the urban environments of the past. Um, Each week, we're going to use that as an opportunity for I think maybe bi-weekly at the moment To (laughs) (laughs) as we get things started, meet with someone in the urban planning field, whether that's a professor, uh, another academic, a classmate, a community leader, or professional in the field to learn a little bit about a small slice of their research or passion. And then Maggie and I, as co-hosts, are going to bring to the table a piece of urban history that connects directly to their research and just have a conversation about it. So we really hope that this can be a place for people in the urban planning field or just those that are interested to listen in and kind of have an interesting discussion about how we can always learn from our past and maybe learn a thing or two. So Maggie, would you like to introduce our guest? Yeah, so welcome everyone and also
1: welcome today our guest, Professor of Urban and Regional Planning at the University of Colorado Denver. He's been recognized as a Chancellor's Urban Engage Scholar, a Fulbright Scholar, and the foremost authority on Denver Street Taco recommendations. Please welcome Jeremy Namath.
2: Thank you. How are you guys?
0: Good. I mean, we should also mention that we were, this was Jeremy's class that we started this podcast in. So thanks for encouraging us. I think you liked it. So cuz yeah. I you yeah. no, speak absolutely. for you.
2: <laughs> no, I'm really excited because um I offer students, you know, they can do whatever kind of um you know, final project and and they can do a, a, an essay, a paper or be creative and do, you know, a video and um and Camille I think said that she and Maggie that you Camille you said that you and Maggie wanted to do a podcast. Mm-hmm. So I was like, let's do it. And it was great. So I'm so happy to be on episode two of the podcast and, uh, and talk about some stuff that I've been doing.
0: Yeah, we're happy to have you here. Thank you, Jeremy. Uh, so this episode is all gonna be about, can neighborhoods make you sick? Can your neighborhood make you sick? And really just how public health and your zip code can intersect. So to kind of take us back in time to really put some context to this discussion, I think when you think about- transmissible pandemic diseases. I think two things come to mind. This unprecedented time that we're currently going through um, really isn't so unprecedented because just about a hundred years ago, we also famously know about the pandemic of 1918, the influenza pandemic. I think going into (laughs) 2020, I had the understanding that I think maybe many shared and now is very wrong that this would be a great equalizer. It's something that it was going to be highly violent. It would really affect everyone across the board. Um, But when we look at history of our urban environments and we look at how things have unfolded, that's very much not the case at all. The influenza pandemic and the current coronavirus pandemic are affecting people very differently depending on your socioeconomic status and really where you live. So I looked and found this really interesting piece of research. And Jeremy, I'm not sure if you've come across it. Um, There's so much out there, and that's why it's great to kind of discuss these things. But this is something that was put together by several academics across the country from different institutions. Um, It's titled Disparities in Influenza, Mortality, and Transmission Related to Sociodemographic Factors Within Chicago in the Pandemic of 1918. And everything will be cited in the the notes if anyone wants to take a look specifically. Um, But to kind of just talk about what these research researchers have found is that when you look at Chicago and during the influenza outbreak of 1918, there was really a a very direct link to where you lived and how this pandemic affected you and and death rates that they looked at. Um, So something that I found that they were looked at really quite a bit was literacy or illiteracy, rate. They found that on average influenza and pneumonia mortality increased 32% 32% for every 10% increase in illiteracy rate. And they adjusted that for population density, homeownership, unemployment, and age. And something really interesting I found was that unemployment, that they they noted that this really didn't connect very much with having a higher mortality rate. We think of unemployment as it's connected to poverty and low income status. But at the time, this meant that maybe people were less likely to come in contact with other people, or it maybe showed even a a high social status and that they just didn't even have to work. This research came out in 2016. And I think that we have an amazing opportunity here to talk to Jeremy, who has done some research on how our current pandemic has affected people differently in different neighborhoods. So I'd love to pass it over to you, Jeremy, to talk a little bit about the current times, but I think just to set the stage, history repeats itself.
2: <laughs> yeah, no, it sounds like it. I don't know that study, but I think that's, um, it sounds very similar to some of the privileges we have of being able to work at home. I was just actually telling you, you know, a little bit before we started that um, I haven't been back in my office for the last <laughs> two years. I've been teaching online and, and, um, and that's a luxury, you know, I, I have lots of friends and family and just, you know, people that I know who are back in the office and, and they're there for, you know, coming into contact with people who, who, um, who may be contagious and, and basically passing this along and putting themselves at risk. And I don't have to do that. I'm here at home. And, um, and, and that's again, a privilege that I have that's based on my education. That's based on my income. That's based on all of those things. So, so yeah, I mean, what, what I started this project with was really looking at this idea that, that place matters, you know, and a questioning like, is where we live, like how much does where we live actually affect not just our physical health, but also our mental health. And, um, and, and I think mental health is physical health and vice versa. And I've come to realize that over the last two years, Mm -hmm. you know, with being separated from people and sort of that um, we do need those interactions with people. We do need healthy habits and things to, um, to maintain our physical health. And so, but yeah, I started this, there's a study that was done several years ago, and I think it's still being done at Harvard university and some other universities are partnering with it. It's a guy named Raj Chetty, C-H-E-T-T-Y. So I can give you the citation. But (laughs) but his team has been really doing this, this work around how, you know, zip code matters, um, in his words, more than your genetic code in mm-hmm. terms of life expectancy. So it has nothing to do with, has, has much more to do with um, where we live, the pollutants that we come into contact with, the you know, walkability and bikeability of our neighborhoods, that all in- extends our life expectancy more than more than a whole host of other factors. So uh, I don't know if you've seen this, but in Denver, you could, and about three miles away from each other, there's these two neighborhoods. One zip code is 80216. It's actually about a half a mile from where the two of you are sitting right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's um, Globe, Villa Liria, Swansea neighborhood. And the average life expectancy there is, depends on what year you look at, but it's about 15 to 18 years less than in Washington Park, which is mm-hmm. three miles down the road. Um, controlling for all other factors, you know, controlling for race, controlling mm-hmm. for ethnicity, controlling for income, those sorts of things. So it's pretty significant. And, you know, when you look at that environment, you see, it, I mean, well, first of all, you smell a lot of that environment. You, you smell the factory pollutants and and um, the off-gassing of them. The ground Flat water. river on certain
0: days. <laughs> exactly.
2: Yep. Yep. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the, the groundwater they've tested in that, in that neighborhood, the soil, all of it's contaminated by, these, you know, uh, factories that continue to pollute the ground, pl- continue to pollute the air, continue to pollute the water. So, so yeah, so that was sort of the premise of, okay, if this happens every day, and and you know, this is in this world of environmental justice, so I can talk about that in a little bit. But you know, if this is happening every day, then how will it be magnified by a pandemic? You know, what will, will people be? Um, even more affected if they live in certain neighborhoods than others. And I mean, spoiler alert, yes, <laughs> you, can. You, you are more, much more affected um, if you live in neighborhoods that were, that what we really looked at was this historical kind of um, decline of neighborhoods or the sort of disinvestment in neighborhoods mm-hmm. and how that has been played, how, how that's played out today. So, so that was really the study that we did. Um, actually, it's funny because I wrote a piece for our uh, co-wrote an, uh, a piece in this kind of online magazine. Um, it's called The Conversation. It's a really great resource because it's uh, The Conversation every day. There's probably eight to 10 articles that come out, usually from academics, but also from practitioners and they're short. They're like, you know, a thousand words. Um, if not, it, it, maybe even less. So I think they shoot for about 800 words. So, you know, a few pages takes you about 10 minutes to read and it summarizes some pretty significant research. So you don't have to go into the journals and it's all free. And uh, it's a really great, it was a great experience to write this article up. And so I worked with folks at Denver health and, and did this big study of how, um, Historical practices of redlining, which again I can explain. I'll be quiet and let you all talk. Um, how those actually affected COVID-19 hospitalization rates now. And um, and and so I could talk about that. But but yeah, so history does repeat itself.
0: Yeah. No, and I think we we see that it's it's not. In any way random, where people were living in Chicago in 1918, and where people are living now, it's structural, institutional things that are being placed on residents and have placed people in these places that then contributes to this higher mortality rate, which is yeah. is life and death. I
2: mean, so really? yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, so one of the things that we looked at was, um, and, and and you know, when you when we say that structural and it's, it's institutional. I mean, true. Like literally, the federal government did this, mm-hmm. you know, in a lot of cases, and so very famous program that they instituted in the 1930s and 1940s is called redlining, which um, which is essentially this racist. Not essentially, it's a racist <laughs> practice where you know the federal government went around and 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 basically said we need to stimulate home ownership. we need to get more people buying homes. It's basically a stimulus plan, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, construction industry will increase. People coming back from the war. And uh, so this is sort of like mid 1940s and they were, you know, trying to stimulate the economy. And, and, and so banks were like, okay, cool, we can do this and we'll give mortgages to people, but you need to have our back. And this is scary for us to have, you know, 50,000 new mortgages every year or whatever it is that we need to now create, you know, and basically take that hit. And they said, so federal government, you need to help us out. And they said, okay, what we'll do is we'll do this program where, we will determine which neighborhoods are the safest to to actually give mortgages out, you know, mortgages is the loan, you know? So, um, so it's like, okay, these are good places, you know, where we're, and, and the federal government said we'll insure those mortgages. If anything goes wrong, if someone doesn't pay, don't worry banks, we got your back. Like we will, we will get you back, mm-hmm. but you have to make these investment. You have to give mortgages out only in the places that we think that, that are good bets basically where we really think that people will pay back their mortgages, so um, or that you know the properties will increase in value that they're, they're not going, no one's going to walk away from the property or be foreclosed on or anything like that. Um, and so the way that they determine that is they looked at all these neighborhoods and something like 150 major cities around the country. And they rated every neighborhood in urban areas, A, B, C, or D. And so an A neighborhood was the best and a D neighborhood was the worst. And basically you could not get a mortgage in a D neighborhood. Like it's just, Mm -hmm. you know, C's were really hard. B's were, you know, 50, 50 and A's. Yeah. All of them, like anyone could get a mortgage if you, if you lived in an A neighborhood. And the way that they determined that, that's back to the racism Mm -hmm. (laughs) that is inherent in this is they looked at some certain things, you know, the jobs of people there and some income stuff. But the number one thing that they looked at was the race of the people that lived there. Mm -hmm. So if there were people of color in that neighborhood, even if it were not a majority of people of color, although it was so segregated that it was usually white neighborhoods and black neighborhoods or, you know, right. Hispanic or Latino neighborhoods, then uh, it was automatically given a D grade. And the reason why we know this is actually in Denver, there's this wonderful neighborhood called Five Points, which was a historically black neighborhood thriving. It was called the Harlem of the West. I mean, it was, you know, there were every single restaurant was packed every night, lots of jobs, lot, you know, thriving economy and everything. Mm-hmm. And it was still given a D rating because of its, the presence of black people there. So, What that meant was that certain neighborhoods got tons of investments, tons of people coming in, investing in their homes, getting new mortgages, fixing up their homes, and then other neighborhoods were literally starved of of investment for um, uh, until now, you know, or until at least this last generation. And that's had huge effects on mental health, on public health, on physical health, on income, on lifetime income earned, and... Um, you know, the average white family has 10 times the uh, median family wealth, you know, than, than the average black family. I think it's um, even more with Latino and Hispanic families. It's something like 12 times the, the rate. So when you, when you didn't allow, I mean, I don't know about, you know, your friends and family and stuff, but a lot of people's wealth is bound up in their homes. Like, mm-hmm. you know, we might have some investments or things like that, but it's the biggest investment we make usually in our lives. And, um, it's how we create wealth in America and generational were, if, if generation wealth. And if you were literally not allowed to build that wealth because of the color of your skin for two, three generations, you know,
0: never make that up you it, never make that up
2: and it's compounding. Right. So yeah. like, my grandparents had a house, and then they passed that down to the parents and then, mm-hmm. and it's this compounding interest that builds and um if you weren't allowed to do that, then you have some pretty it creates huge disparities that we're living with today,
1: yeah, I mean, my family literally bought my childhood home out from under my grandma, right, so that's just the purest form of the house getting passed, and the generations mm-hmm. continuing on to to build up from not zero right.
0: I had a little Kickstarter. Yeah, sure. Something I'm curious about, if you have information in Denver is um, the, the timeline of, of putting in industry, like polluting industries. Did that happen before or after Redline kind of all along the whole time? And there just wasn't as much mobility allowed for marginalized communities?
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm, most of it, I think, in Denver and, and most sort of newer cities. I mean, you know, East Coast or, or like Chicago, Midwestern cities might be before. but It's sort of turn of the century, meaning yeah, 19th to 20th century. Um, So early 1900s, I know in Denver, for example, Global Illyria Swansea and and along um, I-25 now, which is sort of the west side of Denver, all that industry that kind of follows the freeways, the the freeways weren't there until the 1960s. So it was the industry that was there first. That was cheap land. Guess who lived near industrial areas though, was Mm -hmm. the poorest people in Denver um, because no one wanted to live near a, smelly factory. Um, And that's still the case till today, but uh, industry was put, you know, all along those areas and then, you know, the highways basically were added after. So, so yeah, so industry was located along these two corridors, the sort of North South and then East West through Denver. And we see today that those are where really the poorest people in Denver live, you know, economically poor, culturally very rich in, in many ways. And, and, you know, a lot of wonderful things going on in these neighborhoods, but when you have disinvestment for so long you have you know a lack of bike lanes you have broken sidewalks you know no walking trails no healthy food stores and that's where you get to these sort of physical health impacts that are that are persisting right now and and that we see you know pretty significant disparities between neighborhoods that got those A ratings and the neighborhoods that got the D ratings
0: and someone who is a person of color living in somewhere that then was given a rating then could not have home ownership in that neighborhood and was forced to kind of move elsewhere as well. Right. So it kind of funneled people into certain areas.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think there was that, but I, I think it was mostly already patterns. Know, what, of Yeah. Where you lived was, you know, um, the most important thing. So if you were a person of color in an A or B, I mean, layered on top of this where, you know, where racist lending practices and mm-hmm. um, the real estate industry, you know, there's, there's been lots of recent cases of Steering of people into different neighborhoods and blockbusting, and so there's that on top of it, or the covenants in a lot of homes. I, I met with a friend who works at the Colorado History Museum, and he said he found his original the lease for the housing. It basically mm-hmm. said, you know, that this had to make, had to be sold to another Caucasian owner. So that was legal until you know the Fair Housing Act, so um, which is sort of mid 20th century. Before that, you could you could do that, you know. So I mean, it's put, put a lot of people at a significant disadvantage. That again, it, history is playing out right now. You know, this is not so, It may have been in the past, but it's absolutely just as powerful of a, an effect right now.
1: Yeah, and I think something that really jumped out to me from your article is that you know, growing up in these less dense, less crowded communities, right? For me, it's Midwest. The stigma is that if I move to a city in general, there's air pollution, there's smog, whatever, but But that's not really the reality. Denver's air quality might not be (laughs) the best in the nation, but the reality of it is that the zoning laws in place at the time of development actually led to these, um, you know, worse off living conditions and higher risks in specific neighborhoods, right? It's not a community-wide, it's not a city-wide issue, it's it's, it's a very localized neighborhood level issue that, you know, we should be addressing going forward.
2: Yeah, and you see that a lot of cities are looking at changing zoning codes and things like that to... Increase the number of, you know, increase housing in cities where, you know, we have a very large unhoused population in Denver because when you see property values go up, then that means that a lot of people are going to be left behind. And that's like neighborhood to neighborhood. And so the fact that I live in Denver, it means a lot actually if I live in Global Swansea, or if I live in, in Wash Park or, you know, another neighborhood where the minimum house, I mean, just a, a, an empty lot is a million dollars, you know, so right. um, so it, it really does play out on that really micro yeah. scale.
0: I think a preconceived notion is that just like COVID-19 is something that is so is spread so easily, pollution is something that would spread over a large area, but mm-hmm. I think that's a misconception. It, things become really heavily localized and your closeness to certain things or the life that you have to live, putting you in contact with certain people, is more of a determinant. Things don't just spread evenly. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that this last year, a couple of years have taught me.
2: Yeah, totally. I mean, one of the, so the the article that we're writing up, and again, you know, um, it's not, out yet but um but the biggest finding that we have is actually Spoiler alert. <laughs> uh, yeah, is uh, the level of pm2.5 which is basically uh, pollutants that are less than 2.5 micrograms mm-hmm. so tiny tiny little things a lot of it's diesel more, you know like but from cars and stuff mm-hmm. um but a lot of it's also from factories that's the strongest factor when controlling for everything when controlling for bmi and hypertension and lung disease it existing all these all these comorbidities age, all those kind of things we're controlling for that. The most powerful factor is the amount of PM 2.5 that you're basically inhaling on a daily basis. It's and basically so,
0: invisible, just like yeah, COVID-19 is. Exactly.
2: And so it's, you know, near factories, mm-hmm. near highways, once again, those places that were given those D ratings. And, right. and, and so I think, again, layered on top of that, all these unhealthy land uses that aren't just polluting things, but are are making it more difficult to get out and get exercise because like, why am I going to walk next to a chain link, you know, barbed wire fence with like broken sidewalks, whereas I can, you know, walk out of my door and there's a beautiful parkway that I can go for a jog on with the other thousand joggers, you know? So, you know, it's pretty clear when you walk around some of these neighborhoods that they've just, again, been starved of investment. and, And only recently, and in the form of gentrification, usually, are, is there any investment that's going in? It's not really helping the people who are living there necessarily. It's trying to attract new people to those places.
1: Well, and I think that's the beautiful, or maybe if we can say uplifting thing about the research you've been doing and just the direction this field is moving in, you know, going forward is really recognizing the connection between place and the world we design and how that is impacting mental and physical health so clearly, right? So I think right. the convergence of those fields and how that plays out in real time going forward. Like, you know, maybe for once history won't repeat itself. Maybe we right. can get ahead of that.
2: That's so true. So I'm working on this, on this stuff with folks at Denver Health, at CU Anschutz, at the medical school. They are very, very interested in the role of neighborhoods and the built environment. And I'm very interested in the public health side of things, you know, how this is actually affecting people's health. And so, I mean, we were approached to do this work, you know, so it was mm-hmm. It just shows that I think the medical field is also understanding that all of these things that we hear about that you wouldn't attach gentrification or redlining or whatever to the number of, you know, hospitalization and mortality from a, from an infectious disease necessarily, but we're showing that there's significant things we can do, you know? And so it's very, it's sad to see that there's all these things that actually affect people's lives, but it's also, it's also promising because there's a target now, you know, now we can say, okay. These are the places that are the most susceptible to having residents who are going to get sick, who are going to get sicker, like unnaturally sicker than they should mm-hmm. if they lived in another place. Even if they work in a essential services, even if they take transit, all of those things, we, we control for all of that. And <laughs> still, if you live in these certain places, so what do we do? You know, so now we can actually say, all right, this is where our limited investment you know, we have a million dollars. Okay, hopefully we have more, but we have a million dollars <laughs> to spend as a city. Like, where do we where do we put it? You know? Yeah. Well, I can tell you, here's the places on the map that, you know, if we want to make sure that this doesn't play out the same way again in five years, let alone in a h- another hundred years, then I was
1: going to say um, twenty-one 20, let's circle back to this topic. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right Back around. We'll be, yeah. We'll
2: be doing another podcast. <laughs> it won't have podcasts. Mars, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> That's you're right, Maggie. It's promising because it's like, okay, now we know what we have to do. And if, if we know and then we don't do it. That, that's, that's a political decision. That That's a decision about whose lives matter more than others. And, mm-hmm. and if we want to build more highways, you know, to move people faster down to Colorado Springs or wherever <laughs> or from Colorado Springs up here. yeah. And, and, and we know this research exists that says that that's what's making people poor people sicker. Well, then, then, you know, your politics are out there like, mm-hmm. and, and your decision has been made. And that's where I think this is really important work that we do as a public university. Like we have to speak truth to power.
0: (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Jeremy, if you'd like to stick around Maggie and I are, we're going to preview a little segment we've been thinking about to wrap up the podcast. Mm -hmm. We call it, can somebody ask a blank? So Maggie, why don't you, why don't you show an example of this? Right. So
1: here's what I was thinking today when I was walking to school. Can somebody ask a Denver Public Works employee how they move snow out of the, not the gutter, but like the storm sewer? Because I wear white kicks pretty much every day of the week and I'm like swimming across Spear Boulevard. Okay. (laughs) It's winter. My Converse are cloth. I can't keep doing it. So someone call it a favor. Yes. Can someone ask a Denver Public Works employee how do we clear the drainage system thank you (laughs) appreciate it
0: (laughs) planners are connected uh please call in write in let us know (laughs) talk to someone i've been wondering the same thing there's really a lack of i grew up in seattle famously rainy city i would say there's sewers all over the place there i went for a walk around congress park and i walked four miles and i saw about two sewers drainage (laughs) sewers or, you know, uh, holes for water to go through and it was all pooling up everywhere. So can somebody ask a Denver public works employee, employee, let a girl know. (laughs) All right. Um, Jeremy, do you have the answer?
2: I don't, but I know exactly what you're talking about. It seems like (laughs) they're really good at plowing the street into the places where we walk and bike. And,
0: uh, what does that say? What does that say? Connects back. If you're hearing this Denver, thank you. (laughs) We appreciate your work. (laughs) Just help pedestrians more. All right. Well, we'll wrap that up. Thank you so much. And stay tuned in a couple of weeks. We'll be hopefully back with another guest. So please uh, share this very new podcast with friends or anyone you find interested. So thanks. Thank you, everyone.